Uh, you're aware, if, if you're not living in a cave, you are aware that uh, the Special General Conference of the United Methodist Church took some action uh, this last week and decided that our way forward is going to be the traditional plan. Now, you might recall that the, that the traditional plan retained the current restrictive language against uh, ordaining LGBTQ persons and same-sex marriages. Um, and then also provided greater penalties if those rules are not obeyed by yours truly and this gal over here. That was the traditional plan. Now, that puts us into a uh, time of uncertainty, frankly, uh, right now. So we're living in an uncertain time as to what this means because 40% of that plan has already been ruled as unconstitutional to the Methodist discipline. And there's going to be another pass over the plan by the Judicial Council uh, in the next couple of months that's going to make other rulings about it. So we don't exactly know what's going to be left of the plan once the Judicial Council makes sure that it's on, on the up and up with, with our rules. So um, we have an uncertainty because we don't know what's going to be the outcome and, and what that will be. Um, our other uncertainty that is before us is how our laity and our clergy are going to react or respond in this period of uncertainty and once we know exactly what we have before us. Um, as you can imagine, we've had a variety of opinions. We've had it here in our church and we've had it across our country uh, as responses to this. So Rachel and I um, are having me say this morning to you that it is our hope that our particular congregation uh, can hold together. And depending on our perspectives, uh, we are hoping that you will temper your joy, if that is what you have over this decision, or that you will temper uh, your deep sorrow, if that is what you have over this decision, until we know more fully and accurately what our reality is before us. And then we can all wig out. I shouldn't be jocular about this. Once we know exactly what is before us, then we can have the discussions that we need to have to figure out what is the most responsible way for us as a body of Christ to move forward. So that will come into greater clarity for us um, three to six months from now. So until that happens, um, I'm hoping that we all can just kind of throttle down and do church. Uh, we're here because we love God, we love our neighbor, and most of us love each other. So let's see what we can do about that in these next weeks and months. We have, uh, we have ministries to do, good grief group going on, let's not lose that, right? We have a 50th anniversary to plan and put into place. So unless we're deciding that we're not going to be a church any longer, let's keep working on our 50th anniversary and see if we can build a, a great celebration. We have children and youth that are still depending on us to uh, raise them up, support them in their struggles to become fully who they are. We have wounded souls who will be coming and wanting ministry and, and a bomb of Gilead. 
applied to their souls. We'll have worship to conduct. About time we get to it, don't you think? Spirits to, uh, spirits to nurture. So, we have been persuaded by you all that you are a welcoming and accepting group of people. That's been our experience of you of the last year and a half. And we are asking that you will be that as we go forward, that we expect you to continue forward in a loving and a respectful fashion to one another. And we'll just see what we see and do what we then in our own personal conscience needs to do. So if you are with me, let us uh, get to worship. Amen.
Amen. Thank you. We have some phenomenal children, and we are blessed that they want to share their gifts with us. <laughs> and a wonderful director as well. I know she wasn't seeking that, but I'll share that. May we affirm our faith with joy and a willing spirit as we hear today's scripture. Our reading is from Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 36. Now about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly they saw two men, Moses and Elijah, talking to him. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companion were weighed down with sleep, but since they had stayed awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Just as they were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were terrified as they entered the cloud. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent, and in those days told no one of any of the things they had seen. This is God's word to God's people.
Kentucky Choir. Imagine what it must have been like to go off with Jesus and climb up that mountain. Mount Tabor is what we think it is. Uh, if we go on the Holy Land trip, we'll see it if we can't get up it. It's a, it's a nice, large hillside that overlooks the Jezreel Valley. It's a holy place. It's been a holy place for millenniums, from way back in ancient Israeli history with uh, Deborah and Barak uh, leading the soldiers in battle from that as their uh, headquarter point up there on the mountain. And after Jesus' day, many, many monks through the centuries living in caves and places up on that hillside. It must have been kind of magical for those three disciples to go with Jesus up there. And we're told that it was a, a marvelous, uh, awe-inspiring event that happened so that the, the three of them, once it was over, seemed to have had confirmed what they were thinking about Jesus, that perhaps indeed he was the long-sought-after Messiah. That, yeah, they were following the right guy. So now, some 20 centuries later, we're exposed to the reality of what God was doing and is doing in Christ Jesus, exposed by our scriptures and studies, exposed by our worship experiences and our prayer life, exposed by the testimonies of, of one another about how this Christ Jesus has affected us and and transformed our lives. And hopefully we arrive at a similar place as those early disciples of feeling a confidence that we're following the right guy. And so like them, we become disciples, disciples of Christ. You know, it's a typical human uh, behavior to want to be like people that we admire. I can remember when, when I was a youngster, I just loved my Uncle Jack. My, my dad had three brothers, and one was this bachelor, Uncle Jack, and he smoked cigars. He was the postmaster and the fire chief of our little community on Long Island. And, and when the fire alarm would go off, uh, my cousin Dougie and I would race to Jack's car, and we'd try to get in there before he got out of the house. If we got in there, we could hide in the back. He, he'd be coming out in such a, a tizzy trying to get going, right? So that he'd just jump in the car and drive off. And then we'd go, ah, Uncle Jack! <laughs> Almost have an accident, he'd regain his, and off we'd go. He'd have to take us to the fire then because he had to go, and we were in the car. <laughs> such an exciting guy. I wanted to be like Uncle Jack growing up for a while. But then I wanted to be like Mickey Mantle when I started playing baseball or like... Uh, Oscar Robinson, what a beautiful shot that guy had, huh? Living on Long Island, I started to think, well, maybe I wanted to run a city like John Lindsay, or maybe I wanted to inspire a nation like Bobby Kennedy, or compose lyrics like Dylan, or, or write music like Lennon, paint like Jackson Pollock, take photographs like Ansel Adams. All of these were kind of people I wanted to emulate, and, and I aspired in one way or another at different points in my life to kind of be 
like these folk. Can you think of people that you did that to as you were, you were growing up? I hope you had an Uncle Jack. Being a disciple of someone is kind of like this emulation. But you know, it's, it's more comprehensive because you know, we might want to emulate some parts of what a person is, but not necessarily all of who they are. You know, Mantle was a drunk, and you know, I don't, I don't want to be that. And Jackson Pollock was a womanizer, and I don't want to be that way. And you know, Dylan used to live off his friends in, uh, in Greenwich Village for, for months, if not a year or so, before he started making money. Just, you know, taking, taking. I think about Kennedy with his 13 kids, and I think, well, no, I don't really want to emulate that. <laughs> Discipleship is not emulation. Discipleship is modeling the whole of our lives after somebody. And for us Christians, what we're saying is that we want to do that about Christ Jesus. The whole of our lives. Jesus is the person, we're saying, that we want to most be like. If we could be exactly like him, that's what we would want. We try to conform our behaviors to be the way we think Jesus would behave. We try to have what scripture calls the mind of Christ. We try to inculcate Jesus' values and his attitudes and his perspectives and his thoughts. This is what discipleship is about. What being a disciple means. Giving ourselves over fully, over and over to the Lord. Trying to become more and more like the Lord. More and more like Jesus. Following Jesus' lead in all things. All right? Go do it. Well, okay. I can't, I can't just stop after 10 minutes. I can't do that. But it was a good idea there for a second, wasn't it? Because really, you ought to be saying to me, all right, Dilge, what do you mean? I mean, really, what... What is this then? What does it look like? What, what actually specifically, pastor, do you want me to aim towards? Is it being a right believer, having all the doctrines in my hip pocket and being able to say them out? Is that what you're after? Are you after me joining the church? I just got to join the church, and is that it? Is that cool? Does that do it? If I read the Bible two hours a day, is that it? Is that what you mean by saying this? Is it actually being a really 
good steward and giving 10% of my income rather than 1% or 2% of my income? Is that what you're after? When you're calling us like this to be a disciple of Christ, are you meaning that every week I need to go out and do some good somewhere in the community? Specifically, Tabitol, Dilge, what are you asking? What are you asking of us? I think it's a fair question. I'm not going to answer it, but I, I think it's a, it's a fair question. And that's what this Lenten study is to be about. We've come across what we believe is a package of core principles of being a disciple of Christ that um, we want to present and think out loud with you about. Uh, the sermon series is going to be uh, talking about these core principles. What are core principles? In the business world, whatever, core principles are these central things that guide you, that give direction to what you're doing with your life. They create for you this um, goal that you're striving for. That's what core principles are about. And in our religious language, we talk about core principles directing us towards fully living into a disciple of Christ, spiritually maturing, going on to perfection in our Methodist language, the process of sanctification. Core principles establish our expectations for ourselves as religious beings, as spiritual beings. They will clarify, hopefully, the challenges that we face on our journey and also, they're a way by which we can kind of self-assess ourselves, kind of measure ourselves as to how well we're doing moving into this person that's Christ-like. To my mind, it's all about intentional and identifiable faith formation rather than accidental. Spiritual maturity, the progressive movement of our souls towards sanctification, are growing in discipleship. We discover and we orientate ourselves around certain beliefs. For we Methodists who are not doctrinal, we have a couple key beliefs that are most important to us, and that is that Jesus is our Lord and our Savior. And when we say Jesus is our Lord, what do we mean and what do we do because of that? Do we act any differently? When we say that Jesus is our Savior, what are we saying? And what does that do to our lives? Does it color how we behave, what we say, what we expect? We pursue a life of private piety, and we pursue a life of public worship as a disciple of Christ. We engage in individual acts of compassion, and we engage in acts of social justice as disciples of Christ. And we connect with the local church as the body of Christ. And we see it as a place of study, of growth, of training, of practicing our faith. And we see it as a place that then mobilizes us to, to go out and to be this Christ-like person in the world. The church becomes our mission base. So if society is saying something and it doesn't sound like Jesus, 
Well, as a disciple of Christ, you're supposed to be able to discern that and walk with Jesus. And you know what? If the Bible is saying something and it doesn't sound like Jesus, you're supposed to be able to discern that and walk with Jesus. That's what being Christ-like is. That's what being a disciple of Christ is. Through God's mercy, unwarranted and freely given to us and received, thankfully, by us, our transformation as a creature is put into motion, unfolding through our lifetime. And we do not lose heart in its slowness or its difficulties, and by God we rejoice when we see some progress and look forward with anticipation to the more that is coming from God to us. As we embrace the rule of love that Christ gave us and strive to love God and strive to love neighbor. So over these weeks of Lent leading up to Easter, we're going to be preaching on these uh, core principles of discipleship. And Rachel and I are going to be leading these discussion groups where we can get together and kind of unpack what's being said, what's being proposed, try to make sense of it. If it makes no sense, try to own it, try to see how it works into our lives, how we can make it true for ourselves, if there's any wisdom in it for us. And we're going to do this with the great hope that as a body of Christ and as individual believers in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we will get more on fire for what's most important about who we are and how we are to be with one another. And we will find the ways to live into the great hope that God has for us as a church, as a person of belief, as a disciple of Christ. So we pray that this might be a good Lent, a good Lent for all of us, that we might be able to identify that goal that we're aiming at and get after it. Amen.